Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the Executive Director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and today we're joined by Anthony Matashevsky, Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer at the Network Advertising Initiative, also known as the NAI. Anthony earned his JD cum laude from the University of Maine School of Law. He's also a certified information privacy professional and is fluent in English, French, and Polish. And before pursuing his legal career, Anthony managed customer relations at an international travel company, where he played a key role in the transition from an online to an online business model, focusing on data protection, web and email integration, and the implementation of an intuitive and customer-friendly user interface. Anthony, welcome. Wow, what a great background to prepare you for network advertising. I'm so happy to have you on our program. So few people know about NAI and what it does, yet it's so important. Let's start by asking you to tell us about the NAI. Who are your members and, and what does NAI do? Sure, thanks. And 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 Jody, it's it's a pleasure to to be here and speak with you and, and join the other esteemed panelists that you've had on your podcast. So, you know, it's it's interesting. The NAI was actually founded in the year 2000, right around the time that at the time, the largest internet advertising company, DoubleClick, and the largest offline data broker, or one of the largest ones, Abacus, planned to merge. And there were a lot of concerns about linking together people's browsing. At the time, that was kind of the extent of our internet activity. So there was a lot of concern about browsing information getting linked to people's names and email addresses. And this may also be at a time when some remember there was a, I don't remember if it was a far side cartoon, but basically it said, you know, um, on the internet, no one knows your dog, right? So yeah. the idea was, <laughs> <laughs> I remember it. The idea was that everything we did online was anonymous, and now all of a sudden there was a company that 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 was trying to attach people's names and, and email addresses and, and actual identities to their browsing information. And so the NAI was founded by by Trevor Hughes at the time, who was a, also a main law graduate like myself, and was tasked with uh, coming up with a way to put some parameters around what you can and cannot do with data. There were very few laws uh, at the time that, that addressed that directly. And one of the first things the NAI did was say that if you want to link people's identities with their browsing behavior, um, you have to get their opt-in consent for that. It's it's not something that the average in individual expects and certainly something that needs to be consented mm-hmm. um, to, as well as providing some other information about you know, what kind of choice mechanisms are required, what kind of notice would be required for that kind of linking as well. And so the NAI was founded around that and then evolved as digital advertising evolved. 
And so right now we're both a regulatory body and a tra trade association for third parties, the, those sort of quote unquote ad tech companies that intermediate in digital advertising between the publishers of the websites where the ads show up and the advertisers who want to show, show their ads. I'll say that there's a few different groups in this space. Um, the DAA, the Digital Advertising Alliance, is sort of an umbrella organization that sets standards for the entire industry. And they're, so they're an umbrella group, and they set the self-regulatory standards for digital advertising. But it's not something you sign up for. It's just something that, that, that's a blanket kind of... Uh, a uh, set of rules for all companies in the space, and it's enforced by the Better Business Bureau. There's also the IAB, which is uh, the Internet Advertising Bureau, and they focus more on B2B contractual issues and standards and things like that. And the, the NAI is really focused on the third parties, the ad tech companies, and their privacy practices specifically and what they can and cannot do with data. And that has changed dramatically over the years, of course. What's an ad tech company? <laughs> an ad tech company is, you know, these days there's a lot of different niche areas. There's, but generally there's the demand side, which works with advertisers and helping them deliver their ads to the best customers. There's the supply side, which helps publishers find the biggest revenue or highest revenue that they can for the inventory or the ads that are available on their site. And then there's many intermediaries between those and companies that can supplement that with like location data, demographic info, um, dynamic creatives, and, and other things that, that, that help digital advertising reach the right customer at the right time. Wow. See, this is what I mean. It is almost an unknown world. These aren't the acronyms we hear thrown around Washington, D.C. all the time. So this is really, I know we're going to provide a lot of good information to our listeners today. So your vice president, chief compliance officer, what does that role mean at NAI? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, you know, the NAI is really both a self-regulatory body and a trade association. So we maintain relationships with the FTC on the Hill and state capitals, um, try to make sure that regulators and legislators understand what our industry is about and can convey their concerns to our members. But as a self-regulatory body, we also have a code of conduct that all of our members have to follow and comply with. And so I run that compliance program and I work with our members to help them stay in compliance. We have a team that reviews our members' practices on an annual basis and makes sure that they have the right disclosures, they have the right consumer choice mechanisms, they're following all of the more nuanced kind of areas of the code and work with them if we find problems to help them fix those so that they can uh, remain in compliance. And of course, we have a stick so that if, if they refuse, we can we can always refer them to the FTC or, or kick them out of our organization. But generally, just the threat of that is enough, of course. Is um, that what you mean when you said your regular regulatory body is that you can make referrals to the FTC? Exactly. So in, in a self-regulatory sense, we have our own code and we enforce that against our members. And if they fail to comply or refuse to comply, we can refer them to the FTC as well. 
I think, you know, for me, the most interesting part of this is the feedback loop because we have the code of conduct that we enforce against. And so every year we speak with all of our members, they fill out lengthy questionnaires, we examine their data collection and sharing practices and so on. And we have an understanding of what's going on in the ecosystem. And that feedback loop shows us operationally how companies are actually impacted by the code and the guidance that the NAI provides. And we can see where perhaps we're handcuffing members unnecessarily with no real benefit to privacy, or we can find loopholes that that may be emerging or new technologies and products that aren't addressed by our existing requirements. And having that insight and having um, the ability to, to take those learnings on a yearly basis to update and fill those gaps is tremendous. And that's, you know, basically we, we do a year's worth of compliance reviews. We've got about 100 members who are the ad tech companies. It's everyone from, you know, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, Oracle, companies like that, to much smaller niche players. Um, and knowing what they're all doing every year and then being able to kind of on the fly adapt our requirements around that is is priceless. Very interesting. So that's a big job you have. (laughs) I remember when the internet was just coming out and everyone was talking about new advertising models. It took a while, but it happened. And advertising is one industry area that has completely changed thanks to the internet. And I'm sure that is still evolving. And it's much more complicated than I think people realize. Advertising used to be, you know, coming up with a good ad and figuring out where to place it. But now it's a much more complicated space. We've heard the term ad tech. I just ask you about that. But what are some of the business shifts that are taking place now and what's driving them? Oh, sure. Uh, Thanks. And then that's a great question. Jody. So when we first started, as our name belies, although we've tried to pivot to just NAI, we're the Network Advertising Initiative. And initially, there were advertising networks. You know, a hundred websites would group together and agree to share their you know learnings about how specific browsers or devices um, access their content. This seems to be more of a sports lover. This seems to be more of a you know, as a soccer mom, or this seems to be more of someone who, you know, is, is a frequent shopper at certain websites. And that was the extent of it. And really, over time, it really evolved to the point where now everything is handled in real-time bidding, or also known as RTB. And that real-time bidding basically means that Anytime there's an ad impression available on a website or an app or a TV show on a connected TV, uh, a signal goes out to all potential advertisers giving the IP address and some other information about the available impression. So you know, what, what, what kind of content is being consumed? What is the IP address? What's you know, potential cookie ID or something like that? And based on that information... The advertisers can pre-select, you know, what they're willing to bid. You know, this person might be worth, you know, five cents for an impression on a website, or this person who's actually been to our website before might be worth twenty-five cents because they already know about our product, and you know, we we have a much higher likelihood of of converting someone like that. And so that real-time bidding has really dramatically shifted the way that the ecosystem operates, where 
all advertisers, including through their third-party contacts, can now bid on any impression that's available online. You add to that things like cross-device linking, where multiple devices can be grouped together and an ad can be shown on one device um, based on something that happened on a different device. You can bring in offline data where advertisers can use their own customer record management or CRM data sets to target known users. You bring in mobile devices with location data connected televisions with viewership information. And it's it's really quite expansive. And, you know, traditionally, that's all been regulated through self-regulation. The NAI came up with rules about, you know, you have to have an opt-out for this. You have to have notice about these data sharing practices. But in the recent last couple of years, we've seen a number of state laws that have been passed addressing these things directly. Yeah. California has two laws, CCPA and CPRA. Um, Colorado, Virginia, Connecticut, all these states now have laws that address these things directly. Of course, they don't do it quite as in-depth as the NAI and with quite as much nuance because we, we understand this space so much better. But all of a sudden, instead of just looking to self-regulation, um, these companies are now required by law to have a privacy policy. You know, in the past, I've definitely heard the outside counsel tell people that unless you really need to, don't have a privacy policy, right? It's just going to tie you down to certain practices that that could be, you know, end up leading to problems. And now that's moved from something you sign up for at the NAI to just a legal requirement. And so for those companies that you know, have been part of self-regulation. I don't think it's a dramatic change. You know, they, they already have privacy policies. They have consumer choice mechanisms. And many of the state laws were kind of modeled on a self-regulatory code like the NAI. But there's smaller changes with regard to a specific language where in California now all publishers of websites have to have a do not sell button if, if they share data with anyone. There's also diverse definitions of sensitive info, where in one state, citizenship status um, is sensitive, or another one, ethnic background is sensitive. Things like that, where companies now need to, you know, I haven't seen many direct conflicts, but companies have to synthesize all of these requirements and and try to make sense of them. And one of the, the effects of that also is just the relationships between the various parties involved. So... You know, one of the major changes I've seen is that a lot of the state laws have service provider exemptions for sharing data where there's fewer disclosure requirements and so on. And a lot of business models are shifting to more of a service provider business models in order to facilitate digital advertising. Yeah, but the business has to be responsible for its data. I always say you can outsource the work, you can't outsource the compliance requirement. That's right. And I, I agree with that 100%. You know, sometimes you can lean on someone else, um, but then you have to do a lot of extra right. due diligence and review for, for those kinds of things. And for yeah. us, what we've seen is that there's less of a need for a comprehensive kind of code of conduct that establishes those baseline rules because they're already present now in state laws and sort of the contractual requirements that pointed to compliance with something like the NAI code are now instead pointing to state laws. But there's a lot of niche areas where 
state law just couldn't get deep enough into talking about, you know, what you can and can't do with location info or health information um, or specific data sets like that. Well, you know, it's interesting. The self-regulatory model, of course, is a good one and it's one the private sector embraces. But I think with privacy and cybersecurity, more so with cybersecurity, companies have just failed to do what they're supposed to do. And so I think we are going to see regulation replacing self-regulation in some areas. Let's talk about some of the independent actions some of the big tech companies have taken, like Apple and Google, with respect to advertising models and content delivery. Can you tell us about that? And how are those companies impacting the industry and consumers? Yeah, I I would love to, Jody, but I would just also like to say that, you know, I I think we just as much, if not more than anyone else, you know, support a comprehensive federal privacy law. Um, Obviously, there's some, you know, there's some debate about preemption and things like that. But I think generally, yes, more clarity and more certainty about what is and is is not permitted would be helpful to everyone involved. There's room for like a self-regulatory body that actually you know, does its own compliance to perhaps provide some sort of safe harbor or something like that. But yes, we, I, I just want to make clear that, that we're very much in favor of federal privacy legislation. I think everybody is, if it ever happens. <laughs> yeah, I, I have yet to hear someone who's not, right? In our lifetime, well, we've seen this though. <laughs> and I was just, uh, just to double check my own facts, I was reading some articles from... Uh, 20, uh, 15, 10 years ago. And they all kind of are saying that already. And even in the 90s, um, you know, obviously we're due for privacy legislation. Uh, You know, some maybe didn't have as much foresight as others, but um, (laughs) (laughs) so, yeah, I think, you know, the the, the state laws are, are on one side, right? So there's now these requirements that aren't just something you sign up for and, and potentially deal with the self-regulatory body, mm-hmm. but you're now subject to enforcement by state attorney generals and so on. On the other side of it has been a few dominant key players, I think, especially in the mobile space and the web browser space that are asserting their own privacy concerns. And so historically, most digital advertising relied on third-party cookies in the web where companies would set a cookie that could be read on any website, not just an individual website. And that way you could sort of track what a device did across websites pseudonymously, right? It was just a random ID that was that was assigned to a browser, but it allowed you to recognize the same device over time. In the mobile space, mobile ad IDs were used for that. So these were actually generated by Google and Apple, and users could reset them or block them and so on, but they were a constant ID that allowed for the sort of recognition, again, of the same device. You didn't know whose device it was, but you knew that the device you saw in one app was a device you saw in a a different app. And over the last few years, that has been significantly curtailed. Third-party cookies are blocked in most browsers and are on their way out in Chrome, which is the most popular browser. But that was scheduled for the end of this year. I think it's been delayed a little bit, but I think the the, the end is clearly coming for third-party cookies. Mobile ad IDs are facing the same fate, where now 
it's much more difficult to access them. There's more consent screens and, and, and confusion around their use. And so the question is, you know, where do things go from there, right? And, and I think part of this, that there's an antitrust issues, right? Because we can all probably imagine that, you know, Apple doesn't earn as any money, frankly, from, you know, free apps that don't pay any commission and, and handle their own advertising. But obviously, you stand to take a 30% share of, of a paid app. And if, if advertising is that much more difficult and, and more difficult to make it profitable, then more apps are perhaps likely to shift to a paid model instead of advertising. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there's some cynicism there. This is my own personal opinion, certainly not you know, one of the NAI, but I think it, we should all be aware of some of the kind of competing motivations. Forces, yeah. 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 So what about certain data like location data? I mean, there's benefit versus problematic uses. Has NAI looked at that and where do your codes of conduct come into play with that, those specific type data like that? Oh, that's a great question, Jody, and it's one that's definitely been in quite a few New York Times and Wall Street Journal articles over the last few years. So it's a great example, and it's an area where it can be very helpful, but also potentially privacy invasive. I think even you know over the last few years with the global health pandemic, taking aggregate information and seeing you know verifying you know, what percentage of of, of, of consumers or users are violating versus obeying quarantine requirements or potentially, you know, in the wake of changes to some reproductive health rights, there's a lot of interest in aggregate info of how many people are traveling out of state or, or doing things like that for those purposes. Right. Well, and after January 6th, you know, these geofence warrants where they, uh, the law enforcement could ask for a whole around the U.S. Capitol at this date and between these hours. Precisely. And so, you know, we have quite a bit of requirements around location data and we're working around sensitive locations specifically and things like protests, um, you know, riots or, or other events that, that are bound by a certain time frame. And we're working on that trying to find the right the right mix certainly you know location is consent based so you have to permit a device to collect your location data but the problem is those consents are generally just oh do you want to allow your weather app to access your location right. and the average consumer will think oh well of course the weather app won't know but they may not realize that the weather app is also sharing their location with 20 other companies that exactly reuse it, resell it, or do other things. And so we've been focusing on just-in-time notice that pops up or is presented to the consumer before they consent through their phone controls, explaining that this data will be shared with others and they can always revoke their consent and here's how to do it, but that for many apps, it's effectively how they finance themselves, right? And so we've been focusing on that as well as outlining some sensitive locations that companies can voluntarily not store effectively, right? Things like abortion clinics, political rallies, you know, uh, maybe payday loan services, uh, military bases, things like that, where there's 
a question versus the value of holding that data versus the potential issues it could create. But the tricky part is the, I think, the implications for research and, you know, evacuation planning and things like that, where, yeah. Yeah. Well, so what about specific data? Like, has NAI been involved with health data, for example, and advertising? So we're talking about location data, but but then that's, as you said, an, an opt-in type thing that most people may not think about broadly enough, where does all that go? But health data and advertising. Can you tell us what NAI's looked at with that? Yeah, and we've frankly always been very, very interested in health data. And initially, our approach was based on protecting user browsing or app use information, right? So if I go to WebMD and look up, you know, a sexually transmitted disease or a mental health condition, I may not want to get ads targeted about that the next day, especially when I'm at work, right? (laughs) And so... We focused on that and we try to create a, you know, a short but effective blacklist um, of conditions that are sensitive and that need opt-in consent for retargeting or, or further kind of t- the digital advertising based on, on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, that, that worked really well. But what happened is as offline information came into play, modeling really took off. And what I mean by that is that companies stopped focusing on you know people that might be researching something or or have a condition but they simply look at you know what is the average age gender you know marital status ballpark household income number of children for any given condition and then target those demographic factors right so i think you know we can say women are probably more responsive to ads about breast cancer and men are more responsive to ads about ED. And banning that type of advertising just based on gender, for example, seemed you know silly to us. And so we try to find out, you know, what is the line? Where where mm-hmm. how do we allow for kind of intuitive general targeting methods without permitting these kind of models of getting too specific. Um, And what we settled on is a 10% rule where if you create a decile of the population that is most, you know, most likely to be interested in solutions or treatments for a given condition, but don't have any actual understanding of their health status or anything like that, but just understand their demographic info, that as long as you make that group large enough and you disclose what you're doing, that effect and and also don't start bringing in things like individual purchase information and potentially more yeah. sensitive data. That's okay, right? Like that, that that you can you can say here's the ten percent of the population that may be most responsive to to, to, right. to this kind of ad. But um, but isn't a lot of this run by algorithms? When you were saying the bidding in real time, I mean, isn't a lot of that done by algorithm? Exactly. And I think training those algorithms or setting them to certain parameters ahead of time where, you know, don't look too deeply. In some cases, the algorithms are better than, than you know, what we allow. And so they actually have to inject noise or additional data into those data sets to, to meet our requirements where you know, they, they can get much more precise, but then they have to add random people. This is so interesting and we've got so much more to cover, but we're about out of time. So before before we close, I want to ask you though, where are we headed? What are the new trends in ad tech? 
honestly, for me, the, the biggest change I'm seeing is just how much connected televisions and what we call OTT or over-the-top devices like Roku sticks or Apple TVs or Xboxes are now part of this ecosystem. And I think even two or three years ago, everything was only on browsers and, and mobile phones. And now TVs played just as much a, a part of that ecosystem as, as they did before. I think they have their own privacy concerns, right? Most of our phones are kind of personal devices, but TVs are still shared and, and family devices. So if you start showing ads on a TV based on something that someone looked up on their phone, assuming a certain level of privacy, it could be problematic. And, and you know, you add to that the fact that there's 100 TV operating systems and not just Google and, and Apple like there is in, in the mobile space. So there's not kind of this duopoly just providing two ad IDs and setting the rules. Right. Um, it's almost like a Wild West right now. And, and it's we're trying to wrap our, our heads around and figure out what's going on and make sure that we provide the right guidance to our members so they don't do anything. And it's stupid. fascinating. So you're kind of like back in 1999 all over again. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll keep happening and get ready for satellites. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Anthony, for with us and telling us about NAI and the important role it plays in our internet ecosystem and work advertising. It is such an interesting topic. I think we're going to have to have a follow-on program on algorithms. Great. But for today, thank you very much. Thank you, Jody. It was a pleasure to, to speak with you. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.